The Blevins Franks Report with Rob Kay of Blevins Franks Wealth Management. It's a Sunday morning on Rivia Radio where we talk to Rob Kay and we will also be talking to another member of the team, Tom. How are you, Rob? I'm very well, thank you, Howard. Yourself? I'm you well. ready for Christmas? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Getting there. <laughs> Getting there, right? That, that, that explains it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's move on quickly, yeah. <laughs> anyway, last week we did discuss the UK's autumn statement and referred to the fact that there'll be quite a few changes to UK pensions. Lots of our listeners have contributed into UK pensions and rely on them to fund their retirement in France and Monaco. So this is a very important subject. However, before we discuss pensions, what caught your eye in the news this week? Well, Howard, um, COP28 has been dominating the headlines over the past 10 days. And as it draws to a close on Tuesday, the uh, the, the, the outcome is, uh, is I think, is, is slightly mixed. The, the 28th Conference of Parties, as it's known, is being held in Dubai this year, with 197 countries re- represented by 70,000 people, which in itself seems to be out of context with the group's aim. The 70,000 attendees have been showcasing their efforts to limit global warming and demonstrate how they are prepared for future climate change. Conference President Dr Sultan Al-Jabbar opened COP28 with a very simple message. We don't have any time to waste. We need to take urgent action now to reduce emissions. Every country and every company should be held to account. They need to be guided by the North Star of keeping 1.5 degree temperature increase within reach. Unfortunately, he then followed that by telling us and his audience that that target wasn't achievable in the fossil fuel world that we all live in. His Serene Highness Prince Albert reaffirmed the Principality's commitment to the fight against climate change. He highlighted at COP28 the national climate policy and he said that Monaco will increase its significant international financial contribution as well as its historic attachment to the inclusion of the ocean climate discussions. Prince Albert said that that we all have an imperative obligation to do everything in our power to rectify the trajectory of rising temperatures on land and in the oceans. Now, speaking of waste, we all have a month to understand the new rules about the disposal of food and vegetable waste, which comes into force on the 1st of January. At the moment, households put an average, we are told, of 83 kilos of bio-waste in the bin every year. And the EU law says that by 2025, bio-waste should not be disposed of in ordinary tips or incinerators. So to bring France into line, all homes in France must have a way of keeping their food waste separate from other rubbish, and local authorities must provide a means to dispose of it. Households will be expected to have a separate bin for kitchen waste, such as peelings, coffee grounds, old bread, uh, meat leftovers, as well as green garden waste. This type of waste can then become composted and local authorities will have to provide locations where people can take it or offer door-to-door collections with, spe- with special bin lorries. If the waste is collected, it will have to go to a special treatment facility where it can be recycled into compost or biogas. On the financial front, we received some very timely and surprising news this week. In November, European inflation reduced to 2.4%, down from 2.9% in October. On the back of this news, we were also told that Black Friday spending had not delivered what was expected. Both reports were at odds with each other. 
Measures have been put in place to slow spending down and therefore reduce inflation. But then why are we surprised when a big spending event doesn't achieve what it was designed to achieve? The only real surprise is the result was a surprise. But then my attention was also drawn to what I thought was another unusual incident. The London Stock Exchange suffered two interruptions this week, which hit trading in a hundred of small listed companies. Trading was temporarily stopped in small cap stops, with only securities on the FTSE 100 and the mid cap 250 indices being able to be traded. The first incident happened at 9.23 on Tuesday and trading went resumed by 10.17. But then, just over an hour later, the same problem reoccurred, closing trading from 11.23, again for another hour. So far, no explanation how it has been given for these outages. Let's just hope it doesn't continue. Yeah. You take me back to my childhood for looking after compost in, in the garden. It's, it's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's, 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 it's an art, I tell you. It's an art. Yeah. So, Rob, can you explain what pension changes have been announced? The uh, the autumn statement presented by the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer on the 22nd of November contained several pension-related announcements. For many of our listeners, I'm sure the best news was the confirmation that the UK government will stand by the pension triple lock system, which means pensioners will receive an 8.5% increase to their state pension in April. Hunt referred to the triple lock as a lifeline for many during the recent period of high inflation. This 8.5% increase will be one of the largest ever increases to the state pension. Now, first introduced in 2010, the triple lock is the safeguard which is applied to UK state pensions to ensure they don't lose value because of inflation. There have been lots of calls to scrap it or at the very least modify it, especially during the pandemic, but the current government has chosen to honour it, which means increasing it in line with September's inflation figure. It's called the triple lock because there is a three-way guarantee. State pension increased by the higher of average earnings, Inflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index, or 2.5%. Over the years, the rules that govern pensions have continually evolved, and as a result, millions of people have accumulated small amounts in lots of different pensions. To deal with this issue of small pension pots, the government is looking to create what's known as a lifetime provider model, which will allow workers to consolidate their pensions into what is also described as multiple default consolidator schemes. They then intend to introduce legislation which will require employers to pay contributions into their employees' consolidated pension schemes, not the employer's in-house scheme, which simply exacerbates the small pension pot problem every time an employee changes employer. The government will introduce the opportunity for defined benefits final salary pensions to invest in what is known as productive finance. When, while fully protecting the member benefits so we don't have another Rob, Robert Maxwell-type issue. It will also commit £250 million to two successful bidders in the Long-Term Investment for Technology and Science Initiative and establish a new growth fund within the British Business Bank to give pension schemes access to opportunities in the UK's most promising businesses. And the other new news was the UK government will legislate in the Finance Bill to remove the lifetime allowance, the LTA. This legislation will set out the taxation of lump sums, the lump sum death benefits, the application of LTA and lump sum protection, the tax treatment for overseas pensions, transitional arrangements and the reporting requirements. And these changes will take effect from the 6th of April 2024. 
Did we not discuss the abolition of the lifetime allowance after the spring budget? <laughs> yeah, we certainly did, Howard, and, and the government did announce it would be abolished. Um, I was about to say in theory, but it has gone. Anyone who has crystallised the pension in the last six months and exceeded the lifetime allowance has not or have not paid the lifetime allowance tax charge. But, and it's a big but, the pension providers are still required to do the lifetime allowance calculations. The reasons we are told is because the removal of the LTA is part of a package of measures and the process is not straightforward due to the complexity of extracting the LTA from legislation. But the aim is to completely abolish it from the 6th of April. What appears to be a simple issue is a lot more complex than first appears. People frequently have more than one pension. There isn't, so there's a need for a legal mechanism to be in place to ensure the correct amount of tax is charged across the totality of all pension schemes. And the different tax treatments that apply on death before or after age 75 are also another contributing factor. We are told the new draft legislation introduces the necessary mechanism for this to be achieved. To fully understand the issues at work here, we need to take probably a step back and view the overall situation. Lifetime allowance was first introduced on the 6th of April 2006 and capped at a maximum amount we can have in our pensions without having this additional tax charge. Then, over the next five years, the lifetime allowance threshold gradually increased from £1.5 million to £1.8 million. Pounds. Then from 2012, it was gradually reduced and by 2016 it was back down to £1 million. Over the following seven years, it ticked up very slightly, but when it was abolished, um, it was only at £1,073,100. It's important to remember that the, the lifetime allowance was introduced when Labour was in government. It's been maintained while the Tories have been in power, and it has generated a substantial amount of revenue for successive governments, whatever political persuasion they are. The reason why pensions have become such a political football in the UK is they contain so much money. Defined contribution pensions, which in simple speak are private personal pensions, hold, we are told, in excess of £3 trillion. A monetary figure has not been placed on the value of defined benefit pensions, which are which accompany our government pension funds, but their overall value must be at least as much and probably much more than personal pensions. The point here, however, is... If we thought a government, in fact any government, would simply abolish a lifetime allowance and not replace it with something else, we were being more than a little naive. So that's where we are today. The government will introduce two new allowances from the 6th of April next year. The lump sum allowance and the lump sum death benefit allowance. And what will be the threshold? Yeah, you guessed it. What was the lifetime allowance threshold previously? £1,073,100. Under the new arrangements, the maximum that can be taken from a UK pension as a lump sum will be capped at 25% of the outgoing LTA, which means £268,275. And there is no mechanism in the draft legislation for increasing that allowance. Any future increases will therefore only happen if a future government chooses to make it happen. So the likely outcome is that over time, the potential lump sum proportion of your pension fund will be eroded by inflation and investment growth. At the moment, if you die before your 75th birthday, your pension fund will be paid to your nominated beneficiary or beneficiaries, and that will be tax-free. If you die after you pass your 75th birthday, whatever they receive, they will pay income tax on. The new lump sum death benefit allowance introduces a nil-rate threshold of here 
And once again, we've got that figure, £1,073,100. Below that amount, whatever your age, the amount you receive will be tax-free. Above that amount, tax will be payable. This lump sum death benefit allowance is therefore a lifetime allowance by another name. And it will maintain the UK Tax Authority's pension revenue stream, which I can't see being changed if a Labour government gets, in, gets elected. The big news for, the, for those of us who have expatriated from the UK is this allowance will be extending to overseas transfers. So that is very interesting for our Monaco listeners, who at the moment would pay the overseas transfer charge if they moved their UK pensions out of the UK. Now, from April, they will be able to enjoy a nil-rate threshold of £1,073,100. Now, unfortunately, that's not so good for our French listeners, because from April, you will pay tax on any excess above that figure if you move your pension. Excuse me stating the obvious, but April is still four months away, so if you have UK pensions, your New Year's resolution needs to be to understand how these rules will affect you. Well, this morning we're joined by another member of the Brevin Sphinx team. Welcome, Tom. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Good morning, Howard. Very nice to meet you, and thank you for having me on the show. So I'm one of the partners at Blevins Franks. I've been at the company now for eight years, and I live here in the south of France with my wife and three children. But on a day-to-day basis, my role is to provide strategic tax and financial planning to clients and prospective clients of Blevins Franks, which is an interesting and varied role because you tend to find that no two clients have exactly the same situation. Now, despite being at the company for a while, um, as you pointed out, this is the first time I'm appearing on the radio. I've twisted Rob's arm and he's very graciously allowed me to join you today, and I'm very pleased to be here. Rob explained that the UK changes that will be introduced domestically in April, but will this affect the French tax treatment of UK pensions? The short answer is that it won't. Uh, The current French tax rules relating to UK pensions have been in place for a long time and there's no indication that any major changes are on the way. Uh, Essentially, income from a UK private pension in the hands of a French resident is normally added, quite simply, to the rest of your income for the year and then taxed at the progressive tax bands, which start at 0% and go all the way up to 45%, depending on the amount. The only difference between this year and next year is that those tax bands are being increased slightly in an attempt to keep pace with inflation. Now, uh, social charges of 9.1% may also apply, but not for holders of the S1 form, which I know has been mentioned on this show before, but I think it bears repeating. The S1 is a very valuable document that is available to certain people, notably those who have previously worked in the UK and who have reached their UK state retirement age. Having said all of that, the fact that nothing much is changing shouldn't be reason for complacency, because the taxation of UK pensions is still a widely misunderstood area, particularly when it comes to succession and what happens on death. There are a lot of people that overlook that a UK pension fund, such as a SIP or a personal pension, is not only assessed for French succession tax when you die, but assuming you die after age 75, I think most of us would hope to live that long, the UK also applies a tax recovery charge on the beneficiary of the funds, up to 45%. Just to give you an example of how severe the tax liability can be, a few years ago I encountered a lady who had inherited a UK pension from her stepfather. He hadn't done any appropriate planning for this scenario and then she was shocked to discover that the French succession tax was 60% on a £1 million private pension, 
In other words, a £600,000 tax bill. Now, with no other funds available, she drew from the pension to be able to pay the French tax bill and in doing so incurred a UK tax bill of nearly 40%. So virtually all of her inheritance disappeared in tax, which I know is not a very nice story, but it does underline the importance of good tax and retirement planning. Ah, good grief. So, are there any solutions, or maybe strategies, if we want to reduce the tax we pay on our pensions? Yeah, I think from a succession or inheritance perspective, sometimes using or transferring a UK pension to an EU-based pension structure can eliminate a UK tax liability for your beneficiaries. And that has been a popular route with our clients over the years. To reduce income tax, there is one particular opportunity that is available to UK pension holders, which is the ability to draw one's entire pension fund as a lump sum. If you do this, then the tax, subject to conditions, is 7.5% on the entire fund, which may well be more favourable than drawing the pension gradually at the scale rates of, say, 30% or even 45%. It's particularly interesting where the individual benefits from the S1 form that I mentioned a moment ago, but ultimately, we at Blavins Franks can run the calculations in any given scenario to work out what would be best for the client. Now, of course, extracting money from a pension begs the question how to continue generating a return or an income. And there are some very specific EU-based investment structures that can be used for this purpose very effectively and very tax efficiently. Crucially, the same structures are often treated very favourably for French succession tax, potentially allowing a tax-free inheritance for any nominated beneficiaries. Now, if these types of strategy had been used in the example I told you about before, then the lady would have inherited the £1 million pension from her stepfather with relatively little tax to pay. But ultimately, there's no one-size-fits-all solution, but with some prior planning, the French tax on a UK pension can be substantially reduced. Well, during the introduction, you mentioned inflation here in Europe has dropped quite drastically. I assume that's good news? <laughs> yeah, European inflation reducing to 2.4% last month was, was definitely good news and a positive surprise. But quite correctly, the ECB's Vice President, Luis de Gundos, was quick to point out decisions on monetary policy have to depend on the reality on the ground. His stem was an attempt to quell expectations that after three months of substantial inflation reductions across the European bloc, the European Central Bank will not reduce interest rates quicker than expected. De Guindos referred to the base effect, which we have frequently mentioned during these broadcasts over the past couple of years. There could easily be an adverse inflationary impact if government measures are withdrawn too quickly, especially if, if as we are all seeing, heightened wage demands. The base effect refers to the effect that the choice of a, of a basis of comparison or reference can have on the results of the comparison between data points. Using a different reference or base for comparison can lead to a large variation in ratios or percentage comparison between those data points. When applied to inflation, the base effect relates to inflation in the corresponding period of a previous year. If the inflation rate was too low in the corresponding period of, of the previous year, even a small rise in the price index will arithmetically give a higher rate of inflation. De Guindos did not elaborate on the path for future interest rate decisions, apart from saying decisions will be data dependent, and if interest rates are sustained at their current level, for a long enough period, inflation should return to the ECB's 2% inflation target. The last two years 
have given us a reality checker and woken us up to the impact inflation can have on all our lives. Governments and central banks must maintain a delicate balancing act between inflation, stagflation and deflation. Too much of any of them is bad news for all of us. Over the past 20 years, inflation has pretty much been kept in its box and under control. In a way, that made us quite complacent. The past couple of years has woken us up to the fact that we shouldn't ignore the corrosive impact inflation can have on all our lives, our income and our wealth. Inflation rates around the world have reduced rapidly over the autumn, which has fueled the expectation that interest rates will start to be reduced. That in turn has given investment markets a boost, and we saw one of those bounces in November when equity markets in Europe and the US jumped 8 or 9% during just that month. November should have reminded us that trying to time the market is a hazardous pursuit. Being out of the market means you potentially miss these sorts of upswings and leaving your money on cash deposit, even if you're getting 4 or 5%, is a brief flash in the pan. Over the past 50 years, cash has performed very badly against equity markets. We just need to take a balanced approach. So, are you expecting interest rates to reduce any time soon? And what's your crystal ball telling you for next year? <laughs> yeah, um, I think after all these years of advising clients, I can assure you, Howard, there are no crystal balls when it comes to finance, investment markets or tax. But you don't need to be a financial guru to see that governments around the world will eventually wrestle inflation down. And then, when interest rates will come down, they will then take a cautious approach because that's the key ingredient. We frequently have short-term memories. Our current inflation problem was caused by an event, then subsequent events that were beyond our control, and we're now having to take our medicine. The expectation is that the Fed will start reducing interest rates maybe in May or maybe midway through the next year. The ECB could go a little earlier, especially on the back of this week's inflation figures. And there is a very strong voice of opinion that the UK needs to do something now to stop the UK going into what's being described as a death spiral. What is without doubt is these events and the fact that interest rate hikes appear to be off the menu is having a positive effect on investment markets, which after three years in the doldrums will be positive for investors across the board, rather just just niche areas such as the famous seven in America and all markets across the world. However, I don't want to rain on the parade, but we shouldn't forget our governments have not replenished their reserves, which were ravaged by the pandemic. So we shouldn't expect tax reductions any time soon. And if our investments and assets benefit from positive market movements, our government will be there to take their share. Now, you can judge for yourself if that share is fair, but as we're approaching the end of the year and a period when we have a little bit more time, hopefully, for reflection it could well be a good time to reflect on the past few years and consider if you have your financial affairs arranged appropriately for the next chapter of your financial journey. So if you'd like some help understanding if your finances are appropriately arranged for living in France, give us a call and speak to one of our Blevins Franks partners. Our telephone number in France is 0493-001780. That's 0493-001780. And if it's more convenient to contact our Monaco office, the telephone number here in Monaco is 97775574. That's 97775574. And if you'd just like to know more about Blevins Franks, or if it's easier to make contact to, with us via the internet, you can visit our website, which is www.blevinsfranks.com. Many thanks, Rob. Thank you, Howard. Have a good week. 
The Blevins Franks Report. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed in this program, contact your local Blevins Franks office on 0493001780 or riviera at blevinsfranks.com. How much inheritance tax will your family pay in France? French succession tax can significantly reduce the amount your heirs inherit from you. Take action now so the right people benefit from your estate. You may not realize how much tax you can save by having a succession health check. Talk to the specialists at Blevins Franks for personalized and effective solutions. Contact Blevins Franks on 0493 001780 or visit blevinsfranks.com.